Friends Committee for 2015, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you all to the National Library of Australia for this celebration of the 150th anniversary of the birth of the Irish poet William Butler Yeats. May I extend a very special welcome to His Excellency, Mr Noel White, the Ambassador of Ireland to Australia and New Zealand, and his wife, Ms Nessa Delaney. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and thank their elders past and present for caring for this land we're now privileged to call home. And now, may I introduce Dr Richard Reid, co-president of the Friends of Ireland, who will begin our afternoon of poetry and song. Thank you for that, Robin. Um, leave that for later. You might not want to do that at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, in terms of in introducing uh, this this afternoon, I'm going to give all the thank yous at the beginning because I, I want us at the very end of the day to drift away in a kind of Yeatsian haze, if you like, after the, the last piece of music is, is played rather than put up the lights and come to a kind of, well, thank you this and thank you that. So I'm going to do all that now and then you'll know at the end that's not going to happen. Just a few thank yous I, I want to give, first of all, to the Friends of the National Library for you know, co-hosting this ev ev event with the Friends of Ireland. I'm really uh, very, very pleased about that. I'd like to thank Sharon O'Brien and all her helpers this, this, this afternoon for getting this event together. Adam up in the control room. The Embassy of Ireland. And I know I have to thank the Embassy of Ireland because the Embassy of Ireland has been very gracious to us in all sorts of ways uh, for this exhibition. You might have noticed the beautiful... Yes, Noel is doing that to me. Uh, coming as I do from the northern part of Ireland, I know what that is. <laughs> Um, and outside, there's a lovely exhibition. Uh, again, thank the embassy for, for putting that up for us about the life of W.B. Yeats, and you might like to look at that as we go up to afternoon tea. Um, we also have Sarah Mangan with us, uh, the first secretary of the embassy, and Sarah has been very busy on our behalf with this event too, and I'd like to thank her. And I'd like to thank our readers for this afternoon uh, for so generously giving of their, their, their time and coming along to this, but you might not want to hold off your personal thank you to the end to see if they read well enough or not. Um, I'd also like to thank Ronan McDonald, Professor Ronan McDonald, for coming down from Sydney to, to be our kind of, I've called him our narrator for the afternoon. He suggested to me the word facilitator, but I thought that was far too public service speak, so I went with narrator, which sounded a bit more Yeatsian uh, at the end of the day. A couple of other things to mention. Um, there are some books available, especially through the shop this afternoon, at a discount, and I know the shop would want me to mention that. Uh, two books, one celebra uh, celebrating Yeats, one When You Are Old, Early Poems and Fairy Tales, which was $34.99 and is now only $31.50. <laughs> So I think that's very nice for the afternoon. And the other one, I've put a, an image of it up here on the screen, WB Yeats' poem selected by Seamus Heaney, was 16.99, now 15.30. The wonderful essay by Seamus Heaney uh, introducing that selection of poems. And very appropriate because, of course, Seamus Heaney is the other Irish uh, awardee of the Nobel Prize for poetry, uh, as was WB Yeats. Very interesting. We have the Irish northerner, the Catholic, Heaney, with a northern accent, and we have Yeats representing the rest of the country, and their 
where he is with his Anglo-Irish uh, accent and everything else. Very, that's a bit of Irishness. We'll forget about that. And the, the other thing I want to mention is that uh, for those of you really interested in this, the National Library has actually got a very wonderful collection called the Fitzharding Collection of uh, Australian books. But within that, there's a collection of works from the Kuala Press and the Dunemmer Press, which was a little press in Dublin run by Yeats's sisters. And the Koala Press in particular used to publish Yeats's poems in Ireland. He had a, an English publisher, of course, as well. But they're, they're beautifully illustrated and they're beautiful little, little books. And there's a very nice collection here in the National Library. Just go in and put in Fitzharding Collection. You'll, you'll find it. All right, then very quickly, we'll get on with it, but the format for the afternoon is this. Uh, we're going to open up with a, a little bit of uh, music from Jenny Gall from the National Film and Science Ar Archive, Dr. Jenny Gall. Then Ronan is going to introduce Yeats to us, take us through a little bit of an overview about the poems that you're going to hear read. You've got the poems on your program. They'll also be on the screen, by the way. Uh, it'll, we'll tell you the poem that's being read, but each reader will, will also tell you the poem that's being read. Uh, and then we'll just go straight through the poems of the first half of the afternoon. And then we'll have a break and we'll have afternoon tea and we'll come back and we'll, we'll do the second segment. And we'll end up with a very interesting little recording of W.H. Auden, which I'll leave the end, uh, reading a poem, a very beautiful poem about Yeats, and then Jenny will play us out at the end of the afternoon. And that's why I want us just to kind of drift away after that, uh, rather than actually come back into all these thank yous. So that's why I've done all this up front now. Okay, let us begin our celebration of 150 years anniversary of the birth of W.B. Yeats. Thank you, Jenny. A, a, a vision air called Tamamikola. Um, I'm asleep, do not wake me. There are several meanings for this, like all good traditional music. It's uh, said that it's a call to the sleeping Irish to rise up against the enemy invading, and you can interpret that any way you like. Um, and it's often played at funerals because it's looking beyond uh, the sorrow that people are experiencing now to... Um, a better time.
Um, wow, what beautiful music. Thank you so much. Uh, and ladies and gentlemen, Your, Your Excellency, uh, it's a great pleasure for, for me to be here and act as narrator, facilitator. Um, congratulations to Richard Reid for organising today's event. It's, it, it's, um, it's wonderful to be honouring Yates here in Canberra. Uh, Richard has organised lots of wonderful slides to accompany all the poems, which in part do my, my work for me, insofar as each slide indicates something of what the poem is about, including, and there was no conversation between Richard and myself, happily the first slide, which is going to accompany my introductory remarks. Because really, what I wanted to emphasise in talking about Yeats before you hear all these poems spread out over the duration of his career, is um, that he, there is really, we should be talking about Yeats plural, because he had a long life, a long active life, with many phases. So there are, if you like, multiple Yeatses. There's the young Yeats of the 1890s, living in London, um, fraternising with the so-called Rhymers Club, uh, influenced by people like Arthur Simmons, who brought French symbolism into the English language, there's the nationalist Yeats of the early 20th century writing um, poems such as uh, September 1913 or uh, bemoaning the, 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 the lack of vigour uh, amongst the Irish middle classes. And then its companion piece, the more famous Easter 1916, his profoundly ambivalent response to the rising, both of those poems we'll be hearing more about in a moment. Um, there's the modernist Yeats, there's the Yeats who's friendly with Ezra Pound, whose poetry changes and mutates from that dreamy 1890s heavy decadent tone to something harder and more flinty. Um, then there's the late Yeats uh, of the famous, the really, really wonderful collections, The Tower and the Winding Stair, which he wrote in the 19, late 1920s and 30s, uh, these extraordinary masterpieces that we'll be hearing in the second f uh, phase, uh, poets full of mythics, full of symbolism and full of mythic reach, informed by his own idiosyncratic uh, work of the occult, um, published in 1925, called A Vision. And then there's the Yeats of old age that we'll be hearing uh, in, again in the second half, towards the end, um, such such um, uh, poems like uh, A Circus Animal's Desertion and Ku Cullen Comforted. So all these involve really different figures. And of course, Yeats himself is very much involved in the business of self-invention and self-discovery, both of his own self and uh, of Ireland that he lived in. But the Ireland he sought to invent or construct or revive, he was, after all, a key figure in the Irish revival, should not be seen simply as reviving something that, was, that is gone or remembering something. It's also an act of imaginative creation, something of the future as well as something of the past. In his autobiography, he looked back to the 1890s um, and remembered the feeling that Irish culture was soft wax that could be moulded. Uh, it could be moulded culturally during the Irish revival, this extraordinarily fertile period of creativity, and also politically um, when the, uh, it, it, during the, when Irish politics started to gain traction again. It went into abeyance in the 1890s following the death of Charles Stuart Parnell uh, and uh, in the early 20th century, um, 
took on more energy, uh, um, ultimately the Home Rule movement yielding space to a more militant sort of nationalism in the, um, uh, in the Easter Rising uh, of 1916. So... Eliot famously described Yeats as one of those few whose history is the history uh, of their own time. And one of the reasons why Yeats is such a remarkable poet is that he has written um, poems which fully express the sense of crisis uh, and the sense of change happening in Ireland in the early 20th century. And we'll be hearing, and when we're talking about Yeats's, we need to think about the Yeats of the public poems such as Easter 1916. But before then, we'll be hearing, hearing the more private Yeats. Yeats, the love poet. Um, Yeats, Yeats, battling, Yeats in negotiation with his own creativity. So he hinges between private and public, between myth and history, between national concerns and international concerns. This makes Yeats a very hard figure to pin down. We should also bear in mind on this theme of Yeats's that not only is he a poet, he's also, as his, as his career moves forward, a theatre director, the, one of the founders of the Abbey Theatre, impresario, um, polemicist, essayist, a novelist. He wrote a novel, The Speckled Bird. Um, engaged in public affairs. And when the Irish Free State is founded, he becomes a senator, what he describes as a smiling public man in amongst school children. Unusually, many writers, if we th- writers, you know, have something to say, and they say it early in their career or, or in their, uh, as they find their voice 10, 15 years into their career. Remarkably and encouragingly, Yeats's standard uh, endures. Indeed, for many commentators, many critics, the really important work, the, the, the work which makes Yeats perhaps the greatest lyric poet ever, um, certainly in the top two or three, is the, the work he did in middle and old age, late middle age, and engaging with that process of growing old uh, and the existential questions that raises, which again he hinges both in private preoccupations and in public expression. Um, what then, amidst this, these variety of Yeats's, can we say are continuous themes? I was, but what, what could we do? Huge differences, as I say, between the Yeats of eight, the 1890s, the Yeats who wrote Down by the Sally Gardens, and the Yeats who wrote uh, Lapis Lazuli, or the Circus Animals, Desertions. What are the continuities? Well, I think one thing we can see, a theme that he returns to again and again, is poetry of escape, or more often ambiguous escape. Perhaps one of the most famous poems that we'll be hearing uh, from his early phase is the Lake Isle of Inishree, when the poet, and he records in his, in, in, in his autobiography the inspiration, he's walking along the Strand, and he hears, sees a fountain, the Strand in London, uh, and it's an urban setting, and he hears, sees a fountain in a shop, and it inspires thoughts of Sligo, and he dreams, I will arise and go now and go to Inishfree. Uh, cast forward several decades, and he's writing um, Sailing to Byzantium, another poem which poeticizes this urge to go to another place. But these journeys, these imaginary journeys, are never simple. 
they're always ambivalent and they always set up a conflict between, I mentioned earlier, history and myth. And he's very aware of that conflict and that tension between myth and pulls back typically from the allure of escaping from history, escaping from change, escaping from transience. But the important thing is that he poeticizes that conflict, that allure between the, pole, between the poles. Later in his life, Yeats says that the quarrel with others gives us rhetoric, the quarrel with ourselves poetry. One of the reasons, one of, I think, of the factors, again, that bridges across Yeats's career is this preoccupation with conflict, with different poles working out. And there is no resolution. This is why it's wrong to look to Yeats for a tract or a message. Poetry is not about answers or about products. It's about processes. It's about the quarrel with, with oneself. An interesting feature of Yeats is how often his poetry ends on the question mark, how often his poems um, conclude with a resounding question mark. Did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop the last couplet of Lida and the Swan? How can we tell the dancer from the dance? The last, the last line of Among School Children. These, this sort of motif of the question mark po- in some way incarnates that sense of struggle. It also, I think, assuages us. Some of the later poems are very difficult, but um, as it, indeed is a lot, are a lot of modern poetry, a lot of modernist poetry, uh, that, of which Yeats is a part, every bit as, bit as much as he's a part of an Irish national poetic movement. Um, it doesn't yield up its meanings easily. It's quite erudite. It's quite, quite elusive. But that's all right. And you sh- in, in listening to Yeats's poetry, we listen, we listen to its effect rather than always try and solve it, rather than always get the meaning or the message. Because this, these are poetries, which, this is, these are poems which poeticize um, the process of questioning rather than trying to give us philosophical answers. Um, the poetry that has been laid out for us is, covers the whole of Yeats's career, starting with the early, with the, with the poems of the uh, of a very early poem, like from 1886, and goes all the way through to um, the last poems. Uh, the first half covers some of these poems of Irish mythology, um, such as Red Honorhan's Song About Ireland, uh, which refers to Kathleen Nahulahan, the figure who embodies Ireland, the female figure about whom Yeats also wrote a play, uh, or um, the Song of Wandering Angus. We can see Yeats's early influence uh, of Irish mythology, which, which, which again continues across his career, insofar as he's still writing about Cú Cullen, the ancient Irish mythic and military hero uh, at the very end of his career. But they tend to ebb off a little bit, those poems, of uh, those revivalist poems uh, from the early period. But that poem, like the 18, of the 1890s, marked by a misty, ethereal atmosphere often a poem of longing, a poetry of enchantment, uh, such as we find in um, uh, the Song of the Wandering Angus. Often poems at this period treating the theme of thwarted love. And another continuity from the early to the late is the figure who embodies thwarted love for Yeats uh, in in, in biographical terms, and that's Maud Gaughan. His muse, who he met in 1889, and said in his autobiography, then the troubling of my life began. This fiery Irish nationalist who um, becomes uh, an inspiration for his verse, 
uh, and is the figure behind poems of, 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 of lost love, such as No Second Troy. Um, a little bit later, he's, she's still figuring in Broken, in broken Dreams, that w- where the tone becomes somewhat more wistful and middle-aged. And po- Yeats is, off, is, is the, one of the great poets of middle age, of disappointment, of life turning into something different from the early expectation, and one of the great poets of old age. So that, again, is something that crosses the whole career. We also hear Maud Gawne referred to in Among School Children when he imagines her as a little girl. He in old age, she in old age, she imagines her as a little girl. So um, that she figures very, very heavily in some of the songs we are um, about to hear. But also in this first section, we find Yeats somewhat reluctantly moving from this mythic, mythic sphere into commentary on Irish public affairs. We find the birth of the public poet. Uh, initially, it's railing against the middle classes um, in September 1913, who he sees as letting down the spirit of the great Fenian, John O'Leary. This is, um, I, w- I won't go too much into the, in, into the context, but September 1913 is inspired by anger over the Irish Corporation's failure to fund an art gallery. Uh, and therefore he sees um, the middle classes more concerned with mealy-mouthed uh, acquisition of the adding uh, pence to pence rather than sp- idealism, poetry, visionary truth, the imagination, which, is, which are those things he puts against um, the forces of modernity, the debased forces of modernity, um, such as uh, including science and empiricism, which he associates with England and which he puts Ireland against, but he also associates with the middle classes, people who believe in surfaces rather than visions and imaginary truth. Uh, Yeats has got an abiding interest in the occult from early in his life. In some ways, it might seem, in some ways, Yeats is a very religious poet. He's not religious in a conventionally Christian sense, but he's looking for truth and meaning outside simple surface. And he finds it initially in Irish, in Irish mythology, but also in the occult. He's drawn to spiritualism and theosophy early in his life. Uh, this is something which uh, later in particular, becomes the girding for some of the great modernist poems that we're going to hear, such as The Second Coming and Lead in the Swan. I'll say a little bit more about that in the second half. Uh, and is an aspect of Yeats, his interest in seances and fairies, which some critics have struggled with, including Auden, who we'll hear at the end, the old figure of Silly Willy, who believes, who believes everything. It's what one critic said, is the Southern Californian side to Yeats, um, which we still, which which critics still uh, uh, conjure with. I think the point to remember is that these images are sources for poetry to provide them metaphors for his poetry. Um, right. I, I, I th- another just one, 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 just finally before we start getting on with the actual reading, uh, I have a little bet with myself. Richard doesn't know this, but I have a little bet with myself that Richard might have underestimated the amount of time we'll take. So I'll try and be brief. Um, another poems I'd like to look at, which I just mentioned, just by way of gloss. Um, Three friends, uh, or friends, um, which we're going to hear Genevieve read, short, read halfway through, refers to um, Maud Gone. Uh, Olivia Shakespeare, who became a friend who was very akin to him, who, uh, who, who, who took Yeats's virginity, and he refers to that in his poem, uh, and 
Lady Gregory, who becomes a collaborator in, uh, in theatrical matters and who owns Cool Park, which is a big house in the west of Ireland, um, which, uh, where he used to go and spend a lot of time. And that, this is immortalised in The Wild Swans at Cool. There are a number of poems Yeats writes about, about Cool Park. Uh, Prayer for My Daughter, uh, which, which, which Richard's going to read at the end of this section, um, really incarnates many of the themes of the conservative Yeats, the later Yeats, who tries to look towards tradition and continuity, looks nostalgic back to 18th century Ireland, as he puts it, how but in custom and in ceremony are innocence and beauty born. Uh, we can see the middle, middle period Yeats emerging there quite strongly. And an Irish airman foresees his death, a poem, with the, a poem about in, in honour of Lady Gregory's son, who was killed over Italy during the First World War. I mentioned Yeats as a public poet. One area, area which, he ha, which, he, which he treats very gingerly, for a lot of reasons I don't really have time to go into, is World War I. Uh, and this is his response to World War I. He makes it a very, very individualistic poem, a beautiful poem of balance in its words and chiasmus. Uh, everything is balanced, including the plane, but also the versification. Um, so I'll leave it there, and I will join you. Uh, well, I'll be reading one, one poem in the middle, but then I'll be able to gloss the second half after our break. But for now, I will pass over to Richard again, who's going to read The Stolen Child. The Stolen Child. Where dips the rocky highland of Sleuth Wood in the lake, there lies a leafy island where flapping herons wake the drowsy water rats. There we've hid our fairy vats full of berries and of reddest stolen cherries. Come away, O oh human child, to the waters in the wild with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Where the wave of moonlight glosses the dim grey sands with light, Far off by furthest rosses, we foot it all the night, weaving olden dances, mingling hands and mingling glances, till the moon has taken flight. To and fro we leap and chase the frothy bubbles, while the world is full of troubles and is anxious in its sleep. Come away, O oh human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Where the wandering water gushes from the hills above Glencar, in pools among the rushes that scarce could bathe the star, we seek for slumbering trout, and whispering in their ears, give them unquiet dreams, leaning softly out from ferns that drop their tears over the young streams. Come away, O oh human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Away with us he's going, the solemn-eyed. He hear no more the lowing of the calves on the warm hillside, or the kettle on the hob sing peace into his breast, or see the brown mice bob round and round the oatmeal chest. For he comes, the human child, to the waters in the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, from a world more full of weeping than he can understand. Normally 
I'd seen this without a book, but uh, you know that people who sing often make improvements, and I suspect that this afternoon's not a time to be improving on Yeats. <laughs> Down by the sunny gardens By love and I did meet She passed the sunny gardens On little snow-white feet She bid me take love as the leaves grow on the tree But I, being young and foolish With her would not agree In a field by the river My love and I did stand And on my leaning shoulder She laid her snow-white hand She bid me take life as the grass grows on the wheels But I was young and foolish And now am full of tears Lake Isle of Innisfree. I will arise and go now, and go to Innisfree, and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee loud glade. And I shall have some peace there. For peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There, midnight's all a glimmer and noon a purple glow, and evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now, for always, night and day, I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore. While I stand on the roadway or on the pavement's grey, I hear it in the deep heart's core.
Red Hanrahan's song about Ireland. The old brown thorn trees break in two, high over common strand, under a bitter black wind that blows from the left hand. Our courage breaks like an old tree in a back wind and dies. But we have hidden in our hearts the flame out of the eyes of Kathleen, the daughter of Houlihan. The wind has bundled up the clouds high over Knocknaray and thrown the thunder on the stones for all that Maeve can say. Angers that are like noisy clouds have set our hearts a beat, but we have all bent low and low and kissed the quiet feet of Kathleen, the daughter of Houlihan. The yellow pool has overflowed high up on Clutna Bear, for the west winds are blowing out of the chilling air. Like heavy flooded waters, our bodies and our blood, but purer than a tall candle before the holy rood is Kathleen the daughter of Houlihan. The Song of the Wandering Ingus. I went out to the hazelwood because a fire was in my head and cut and peeled a hazel wand and hooked a berry to a thread And when white moths were on the wing and moth-like stars were flickering out, I dropped the berry in the stream and caught a little silver trout. When I had laid it on the floor, I went to blow the flyer aflame, but something rustled on the floor, and someone called me by my name. It had become a glimmering girl with apple blossom in her hair who called me by my name and ran and faded through the brightening air. Though I am old with wandering through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon, the golden apples of the sun. He wishes for the cloths of heaven. Had I the heavens embroidered cloths inwrought with golden and silver light, the blue and the dim and the dark cloths of night and light and the half-light, I would spread the cloths under your feet. But I, being poor, have only my dreams. I have spread my dreams under your feet. Tread softly, because you tread upon my dreams. No second Troy. Why should I blame her that she filled my days with misery, or that she would of late have taught to ignorant men most violent ways, or hurled the little streets upon the great, had they but courage equal to desire? What could have made her peaceful with a mind that nobleness made simple as a fire, with beauty like a titan bow, a kind that is not natural in an age like this, 
being high and solitary and most stern. Why, what could she have done being what she is? Was there another Troy for her to burn? Now must I these three praise. Three women that have wrought what joy is in my days. One, because no thought, nor those unpassing cares, no, not in these 15 many times troubled years, could ever come between mind and delighted mind. And one, because her hand had strength that could unbind what none can understand, what none can have and thrive, youth's dreamy load, till she so changed me that I live labouring in ecstasy. And what of her that took all till my youth was gone with scarce a pitying look? How could I praise that one? When day begins to break, I count my good and bad, being wakeful for her sake, remembering what she had, what eagle look still shows, while up from my heart's root so great a sweetness flows, I shake from head to foot. September 1913. What need you being come to sense but fumble in a greasy till and add the halfpence to the pence and prayer to shivering prayer until you have dried the marrow from the bone? For men were born to pray and save. Romantic islands dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. Yet they were of a different kind, the names that stilled your childish play. They have gone about the world like wind, but little time had they to pray for whom the hangman's rope was spun and what, God help us, could they save. Romantic islands dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. Was it for this the wild geese spread the grey wing upon the every tide? For this that all the blood was shed? For this Edward Fitzgerald died, and Robert Emmett and Wolf Tone? All that delirium of the brave. Romantic islands, dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. Yet could we turn the years again and call those exiles as they were in all their loneliness and pain, you'd cry, some woman's yellow hair has maddened every mother's son. They weighed so lightly that they gave, but let them be, they're dead and gone. They're with O'Leary in the grave.
broken dreams. There is grey in your hair. Young men no longer suddenly catch their breath when you are passing. But maybe some old gaffer mutters a blessing because it was your prayer recovered him upon the bed of death. For your soul's sake, that's all hearts ache have known, and given to others all hearts ache, from meagre girlhoods putting on burdensome beauty. For your soul's sake, heaven has put away the stroke of her doom. So great her portion in that peace you make by merely walking in a room. Your beauty can but leave among us vague memories, nothing but memories. A young man, when the old men are done talking, will say to an old man, Tell me of that lady the poet stubborn with his passion sang us when age might well have chilled his blood. Vague memories... Nothing but memories, but in the grave, all, all shall be renewed. The certainty that I shall see that lady leaning or standing or walking in the first loveliness of womanhood and with the fervour of my youthful eyes has set me muttering like a fool. You are more beautiful than anyone and yet your body had a flaw. Your small hands were not beautiful. And I am afraid that you will run and paddle to the wrist in that mysterious, always brimming lake where those that have obeyed the holy law paddle and are perfect. Leave unchanged the hands that I have kissed. For old sake's sake, the last stroke of midnight dies all day in the one chair from dream to dream and rhyme to rhyme I have ranged in rambling talk with an image of air. Vague memories, nothing but memories. Easter, 1916. I have met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among grey 18th century houses. I've passed with a nod of the head or polite meaningless words or have lingered a while and said polite meaningless words and thought before I had died, uh, I had done of a mocking tale or a jibe to please a companion round the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where mothly is worn. All changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. That woman's days were spent in ignorant goodwill, her nights in argument until her voice grew shrill. What voice more sweet than hers when, young and beautiful, she rode to harriers? This man had kept a school and rode our winged horse. This other, his helper and friend, was coming into his force. He might have won fame in the end, so sensitive his nature seemed, so daring and sweet his thought. This other man I had dreamed, a drunken, vain, glorious lout. He had done most bitter wrong to some who are near my heart. Yet I number him in the song. He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born.
Hearts with one purpose alone through summer and winter seem enchanted to a stone to trouble the living stream. The horse that comes from the road, the rider, the birds that range from cloud to tumbling cloud. Minute by minute they change. A shadow of cloud on the stream changes minute by minute. A horse hoof slides on the brim and a horse plashes within it. The long-legged more more hens dive and hens to moorcocks call. Minute by minute they live. The stones in the midst of all. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part. Our part to murmur name upon name as a mother as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that have run wild. What is but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewilder them till they died? I write it out in verse, Macdonough and Macbride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. The wild swans at cool. The trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water among the stones are nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw before I had well finished all suddenly mount and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon these brilliant creatures and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I, hearing at twilight, the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest, wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful, Among what rushes will they build, by what lake's edge or pool, delight men's eyes when I awake some day to find they have flown away. An Irish airman foresees his death. 
I know that I shall meet my fate somewhere among the clouds above. Those that I fight, I do not hate. Those that I guard, I do not love. My country is Kiltartan Cross. My countrymen, Kiltartan's poor. No likely end could bring them loss or leave them happier than before. Nor law nor duty bade me fight, nor public men nor cheering crowds. A lonely impulse of delight drove to this tumult in the clouds. I balanced all, brought all to mind. The years to come seemed waste of breath, a waste of breath the years behind. In balance with this life, this death. A prayer for my daughter. Once more the storm is howling, and half hid under this cradle hood and coverlid, my child sleeps on. There is no obstacle but Gregory's wood and one bare hill, whereby the haystack and roof-leveling wind, bred on the Atlantic, can be stayed. And for an hour I have walked and prayed because of the great gloom that is in my mind. I have walked and prayed for this young child an hour and heard the sea wind scream upon the tower and under the arches of the bridge and scream in the elms above the flooded stream, imagining in excited reverie that the future years had come, dancing to a frenzied drum out of the murderous innocence of the sea. May she be granted beauty, and yet not beauty to make a stranger's eye distraught or hers before a looking-glass, For such, being made beautiful overmuch, consider beauty a sufficient end, lose natural kindness, and may be the heart-revealing intimacy that chooses right and never find a friend. Helen, being chosen, found life flat and dull, and later had much trouble from a fool. While that great queen that rose out of the spray, being fatherless, could have her way, yet chose a bandy-legged smith for man. It is certain that fine women eat a crazy salad with their meat, whereby the horn of plenty is undone. In courtesy, I'd have her chiefly learned. Hearts are not had as a gift, but hearts are earned by those that are not entirely beautiful. Yet many that have played the fool for beauty's very self has charm made wise, and many a poor man that has roved, loved, and thought himself beloved from a glad kindness, cannot take his eyes. May she become a flourishing hidden tree, that all her thoughts may like the linnet be, and have no business but dispensing round their magnanimities of sound, nor but in merriment begin a chase, nor but in merriment a quarrel. Or may she live like some green laurel rooted in one dear perpetual place. My mind because the minds that I have loved, the sort of beauty that I have approved, prosper but little, has dried up of late, yet knows that to be choked with hate may well be of all evil chances chief. If there's no hatred in a mind, assault and battery of the wind can never tear the linnet from the leaf. An intellectual hatred is the worst, so let her think opinions are accursed, 
Have I not seen the loveliest woman born out of the mouth of plenty's horn because of her opinionated mind? Barter that horn and every good by quiet natures understood for an old bellows full of angry wind. Considering that, all hatred driven hence, the soul recovers radical innocence and learns at last that it is self-delighting, self-appeasing, self-affrighting, and that its own sweet will is heaven's will. She can, though every face should scowl and every windy quarter howl, or every bellows burst, be happy still. And may her bridegroom bring her to a house where all's accustomed, ceremonious, for arrogance and hatred are the wares peddled in the thoroughfares, How but in custom and in ceremony are innocence and beauty born? Ceremony is a name for the rich horn and custom for the spreading laurel tree. Ladies and gentlemen, that's our first half. We have a gorgeous afternoon tea for you upstairs in the foyer and we'll see you back for the second half. We'll be rounding you up to get you back. Thank you.